Hello. Hi. Welcome to issue eight of Scout and Birdie. I'm Anna Wolf. And I'm Jennifer Keel. And this is The Witching Hour. 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 Ooh, Jen, what was that? Ooh, I have no idea. <laughs> spooky. Spooky scary. <laughs> <laughs> so we chose The Witching Hour as a theme because it's October. And October is a time where the leaves are changing, things get a little bit chillier. People are bundling up in their clothing, but also maybe their emotional state. Mm-hmm. We start reflecting a little bit more. We recede a little bit and start focusing on ourselves a little bit more. Yeah. Summer is a time of, you know, really being spontaneous and, and external. Yeah, and going out and doing things outside. And when the fall comes, you're sort of like left with yourself again and like checking like, oh, what if that summer was really me? Or mm-hmm. And the witching hour, for those of you who don't know, is 3 a.m., which is the time that anything that is haunting you or scary is at its most powerful. Um, and that's kind of a thing you see a lot in spooky stories. So for this issue, our artists really got into these haunting moments that have stuck with them. Focusing on things that their mind returns to like in that sort of dead time of the night or in that moment of like being more introspective Mm -hmm. and really got into that idea of the costumes that we wear for other people that maybe don't reflect ourselves as much as we would want them to and what that means for us. So definitely on this issue, we got a little bit more serious, a little bit more internal. Yeah, this issue definitely has that feeling of October and of starting to look inward and look inward and get more serious and, and reflect. So with that in mind, please enjoy the witching hour. Right. First up, we have Ryan Dale. And we both know Ryan from different shows that we've done, but we have both done um, solo shows with him where afterwards we were like, wow, he is really wonderful to watch perform. Yes, a beautiful performer and a beautiful writer and just a wonderful person to be around too. So um, we're very, very excited to bring you his piece. A and Q. This is the first and last time I attempt a conversation with the dead. And I'm not about to be alone down here. There's no flying solo with the 2001 glow-in-the-dark Ouija board by Hasbro. Summoning the spirit world requires the participation of two or more living individuals. Says so in the instructions. You, my one and only Ouija buddy, are my first ever unofficial boyfriend. So everything's super fucking complicated. We're always hiding. 
from our parents, the popular kids, each other, ourselves, driving 55 an hour down our old hometown country roads between the oceans and oceans of corn. Too afraid to pull over because we're too afraid to get caught. Although you're one or two years younger than me, you're quite a bit wiser, a bit more experienced, and a great deal more confident in the gay department. I have not kissed anyone but you, so I trust you. She, the spirit, our dead point of contact, her name is Dorothy. She used to live here in my best friend's family home back when this building was all chopped up into six or seven smaller-than-studio-sized apartments. I imagine Dorothy's personal space is the smallest one, somewhere in the attic. Dorothy, as my memory serves me, is documented in our hometown newspaper as one of our hometown crazies. My best friend's mom shows us or tells us about or just totally makes up some clipped and safely kept article from the 70s or early 80s. An article older than us that talks about Dorothy bebopping around town in nothing but her powdered blue nightgown with a large kitchen knife of some kind in her hand, on her way to do something totally mundane like buy a sweet potato or make a deposit. Only Dorothy's totally and completely out of her mind. And evidently no one cared. Because eventually, as my memory serves me, Dorothy climbed those rickety wooden steps down into this concrete belly of my best friend's basement, soaked her gown in gasoline, and then lit a match. There's still a burn spot on the wall of the basement and bubbled varnish on the wooden floor door frames one level up to prove it. No one else has the guts or internal imbalance necessary to join us. So it's just the three of us, you, me, and the gnarly old ghost named Dorothy. We've unfolded our Walmart-bought cardboard Ouija board atop an old milk crate, right next to the basement wall's black hole of a burn spot. With your eyes closed, you speak. Dorothy, are you there? I close my eyes too, yet I know you're still there, because I can still feel the heat of your hands next to mine resting atop the board's plastic, heart-shaped planchet. Dorothy, can you hear us? Are you there, Dorothy? The piece, without any conscious effort on my part, moves to the upper left corner of the board. Yes, she says, without ever saying a thing. You and I look at each other face to face, our noses as close as they've ever been, all four eyes trying their hardest without words to communicate. I had nothing to do with it, I promise. I had nothing to do with it, I promise. I had nothing to do with it, I promise. And I know my eyes really mean it. I didn't move it. Dorothy, when will Ryan die? The space feels smaller now that you've asked this. Why have you asked this? Dorothy, when will Ryan die? I can feel my pulse there on the tip of each individual finger, and although I know I am not in any kind of conscious way moving the magnifier, it glides to the number three, then the number two, and stops. 32. How will Ryan die? My heart is improvising its own wild fight-or-flight rhythm, a sad attempt at distraction. Dorothy, how will Ryan die? 
The stillness present in this moment has an unusually high density. And I'm beginning to feel a little bit more like Dorothy, like she's somehow in me. And just when I'm about to retract my hands and wrap this shit up, the plastic heart-shaped planchet decides to move to the letter H, then I, then V. This is where the rest of the, the memory's finer details begin to blur and then just fade. I didn't take the thing very seriously for very long, maybe a couple of weeks, a month or two. I just eventually sort of assumed he moved it as some kind of prank or as some kind of crooked joke. I, I don't know. I didn't believe in any ghosts. Most days. Ten years after Dorothy's predicament in the basement, I'm sitting at our now defunct hometown truck stop restaurant, drinking coffee and chain-smoking cigarettes with you, the best friend that grew up in the stitched-up version of Dorothy's old place. We're both home from college for some basic holiday visit, and you, out of the blue, ask if I've heard from him lately. You ask me if I've heard from the first ever unofficial boyfriend, the first guy I ever kissed, the one I shared the morbid Ouija moment with in the concrete belly of your basement. And I tell you that I haven't, before you tell me that he's sick. He's going through a really rough time, you say. Some of the saddest stuff stories are made of before you tell me that he's been diagnosed. That then micro-memory of Dorothy and her black hole burn spot resurfaces, rearranges, and then inflates itself a bit. And after that, like any other run-of-the-mill black hole, nothing escapes it. Hello. We're here with Jennifer Chuku who is a lovely writer who I met at this um, relatively uncomfortable storytelling event. Um, not made it all uncomfortable by Jennifer and me, I hope, um, but uncomfortable by like, other people who were telling stories at the event. Um, yes. <laughs> Jennifer is a beautiful writer who has created this piece, Notes on a Train, um, which you'll be hearing soon after. So welcome. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, guys. <laughs> Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for being here. So, Jennifer, when I told you that we were having um, a issue coming up that was the theme witching hour, you were like, oh, I've got a piece ready to go uh, with that theme where you, like, directly reference the witching hour. So um, I'm curious, like, what inspired you to write this piece? Um, and uh, what about, like, the actual witching hour and the notes on the train, like... Uh, inspired you to go about actually writing this? So I was on a train ride home back to Michigan and so I just started like clapping away at the computer and so it was pretty like it was like me just thinking about everything that's going on in terms of like political and like my placement in the world and so I remember my one of my close friends uh, Vicky hey girl um, <laughs> She told me that when she was, like, in high school, she always used to wake up at 3.30 a.m. Mm. And so she told me, like, yeah, that's the wishing hour. And I remember just being, like, really, like, kind of freaked out. I was like, yeah, that's when, like, all, like, those, those, like, the things go bump at the night. 
So kind of like I've kind of put that moment into this piece because I just feel like right now with everything that's happening in our world, things are just hitting the fan. Things are just going bump in the night. And I'm just kind of like, what the fuck is going on? Why do I have this body, these thoughts, and how am I interacting, interacting with the world that's around me? Everything that's going on in the world right now does feel very, like you can feel very removed from it because it all happens on this social media yeah. platform. And it's like we're observing ourselves from a distance, which is such a strange way to go through life. It's like the opposite of presence. Um, so yeah. it's really interesting the way you put this together in this piece. I feel like it's a really like a really strong rooted piece, but then there's so much motion, it almost feels like a train <laughs> when you're on it. So it's really, really lovely. Um, yeah, and the imagery of like the, the Snapchat filter and the way that we like detach ourselves from what's actually going on because it's so horrifying to like actually think about this is real, this is the world I live in right now, and it's almost easier to just sort of be like, oh, this is black and white, this is a different time period, this mm -hmm. is, you know, has, like, little dog faces all over <laughs> it, yeah. hearts popping out of our eyes. It's almost what we need to do to self-preserve sometimes, right. which, especially in, in Chicago, is such a specific, strange area, so it's mm -hmm. interesting to be going, like, to Michigan. <laughs> Chicago is a pretty liberal area, but then segregated in such like an intense way mm -hmm. that it's it's almost like Chicago feels like this weird organism of its own. And I get caught up. I went home to California a couple weeks ago and there were Trump billboards everywhere. And I was like, oh, that's not a thing I experienced. And you wouldn't think you would experience it in California, which is a very liberal state. But then the state is so huge. So it's almost like you get trapped in it. So the idea of being on a train is where you're in motion, and it's one of the few places where you can marinate on things mm -hmm. now mm -hmm. and really be in your thoughts. Because I feel like we have so many coping mechanisms to just detach ourselves. Yeah. yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, like, a lot of people who, like, listen to Scott and Birdie, like, listen on the train, and I feel like that's just, like, where people, at least in Chicago, like, have their intense, like, deep thoughts right. of, like, this is where we're interacting with people we don't normally see and... This is where we're, like, being pushed, like, out of our comfort zone and forced to be like, oh, yeah, there's that white man who's complaining about, like, his, oh, the office is my house. And, and yeah, it's, it can be, like, a very weird experience. Um, how long have you been in Chicago? Mm, so I've been in here since... I've been in here. I've been here. <laughs> in it. You're in it. You're in it. I've been in Chicago since 2012. But there was a moment where I talked about the reading where I was living in New York in um, 2016 for like three months. And I left and then came back to Chicago. What about Chicago brought you back? Chicago is like my second home. There's so much. It's like the perfect city to me because of you have like the Midwest feel. You still have like the big city feel. And then you have like you can go anywhere you want to. Like I finally understand the transit system. So <laughs> I'm like, I love it. So... Both of the pieces that I've heard you perform have been, like, um, a really strong, like, commentary on, like, the modern-day world that we're living in and what it's like, like, being um, being yourself, like, in this modern-day world. Um, basically, um, I would love for you to elaborate more on, like, uh, what inspires you in your writing and what you uh, feel like you're, like, naturally drawn to. And, like, I feel like most writers have something that's, like, a, ah, this is, like, 
why I write. Mm-hmm. And so I'm curious to hear, like, what is that thing that really, like, pushes you? So I guess the thing that pushes me is that I'm drawn to the everyday mm-hmm. and writing about, like, how strange it is. Like, the, the piece I performed at the reading we met at was just a collection of sentences that, like, happened to me. And then this one is just me sitting on a train and thinking about it. I sometimes feel that people are just so, a lot of times have the need to escape life that we kind of figure, forget about how weird it is that we're here. And so <laughs> I just I just love using everyday objects, everyday moments, and kind of expanding on that moment. And that even kind of translates into like my painting too, where I'll use like household objects. Like I made one painting with like a makeup sponge. Yeah. <laughs> so, so like I think it's growing up a lot of like my understanding of who I am as an artist is rooted a lot of my childhood and kind of growing up as like kind of like a black queer woman and so in old writing I feel like there's a lot of privilege in having those long ass sentences where you go very elaborately with the way a chair looks but <laughs> for me I'm like I'm just trying to get in get out say what I can before I get caught and use what I can. So it's more kind of like, I guess, a DIY artistic and writing experience. Oh, that's so interesting. <laughs> that's so interesting to me. That feels very modern to me <laughs> in general. Very innovative um, and a nice way of using your surroundings to be very present in them. I think that's kind of what we all need right now. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah, there's so much going on in, like, the everyday life that, like, it is sort of a privilege to, like, escape to writing about these, like, fantastical worlds and these, like, oh, the the curve of that chair and right. the, the style of that, of this thing in nature when, like, right now, what's going on in, like, a CTA ride or opening the newspaper is extreme and necessary and, you know, the experience of being, like, queer and being, like, black, it's there's all of these things mm-hmm. that that more people need to be hearing about, and we don't have a luxury of being like, I'm, you know, riding a dinosaur. Like, <laughs> right. you, you need to know that, like, I am this human being, and my voice is not being heard. Mm-hmm. So thank you so much for being here with us. <laughs> Please enjoy Notes on a Train. There's a 98% chance I do not look like Naomi Campbell, that the jokes I make are not funny, and that I'm not a reincarnation of an in-living color fly girl. I spent much of my life wishing I were another. I have prayed, flipped coins into fountains, and even made a vision board. I know. But I still wake up the same. Vision boards don't help. They only take up space. I am this person in a body that is woven by my parents' DNA, stamped by society's isms, and souls whatever can give me the pleasure of understanding myself. After years of sob stories, broken violins, and failed therapy sessions, these are things that I know I am. An artist, a writer, a shopper, a nigger, a partier, a crier, a eater, a Trump hater, a lactose intolerance denier, a flaker, a drinker, a dreamer. I am in the twilight of my youth, but feels more like it is 3.30 a.m., the witching hour. The ghoulish thought monsters of my childhood appear from my past, reminding me that my body is not wanted, 
telling me I've been transplanted into a life which I do not own. There are powers above me which I do not understand. Example, there is a white man on the train who just said the office is his home and he is currently looking for his territory. As a mutt whose ancestors were bred to work the fields, I cannot believe we are both searching for a territory when he has had the privilege of coming to this land by choice. In this witching hour, the past, present, and future all collide, and during this collision, violent colors appear around me, staining everything I see. Example, the train has just passed the Confederate flag, and I do not know whether anyone else has noticed. The Snapchat filter my millennial mind added to the flag was a black and white, and then a burnt orange. So silly, I know. I wanted to believe I was in another decade. I know this belief is a form of escapism, a skill that I mastered in college, but lost once I walked across the stage and then entered into the real world that I avoided by reading books and writing papers about philosophies that won't give the answers I need. Derrida, Descartes, and even the poetic Aristotle can't answer why my deductible is so high, or if I can opt out of taxes if my money is going to a wall I don't believe in, or why men feel compelled to give me answers only to the questions they think of. I have no answers. And all I have left is imagination. I imagine floating in an ocean, my face in the water, my arms and legs spread open. When I wash up on the coast, my grandmother cups my cheeks, and she is unable to smell the Americanisms that have clogged my pores for 22 years. As I stare into her eyes, which life has tired, I am given a memory of a past, present, and future, which tells me the secret to owning this life. Next up, we have Kathleen Kinlan, who we got to know when we were working on a 24-hour solo fest, which was this wild experience. Yeah, everyone camped out in my living room to work on the show for the 24 hours before the show went up. So we were all camped out overnight and super tired by the next day. But we put together a whole solo show, which was a crazy, a wild experience. Wild experience. <laughs> and a very good way to get to know people. And we got to know Kathleen. And we're so excited to have her on Scout and Birdie. Yes. And Kathleen has created this beautiful series of poems, which were written between 2015 and 2017. They'll be presented chronologically. This is Evolution of a Ghost. One, summer. I'm lost again, dragging my heels on the way to you, folding my neck up hamburger style. Hello to the chalky zoo animals on ceiling tiles, guarding the door to the pediatric intensive care unit, happy hippo Cerberus. A tiny unattended girl presses a silver button to open the doors, keeps the handle sterile. She's holding a styrofoam cup while she saunters through the opening to a boy hooked up to a breathing machine, so loud I can hear it two rooms away. I don't know the proper term for breathing machine, like she does. 
I can't say it nonchalantly. I can't get used to this. You're in room 12 this time. Infected blood this time. Swollen stomach this time. Groggy and translucent. Slurring like the toddler I met six years ago. Still, you squeeze my forearm and we put on a talent show. I can cluck like a chicken and you can impersonate Zoolander to your toy soldier officers. I can call more often. We can sing Seussical. I can find more ways to tell you I love you. You can heal. 2. Autumn I'm on a wasted plane flight. I dutifully traveled to some place for some day, torched on this country's calendars. I didn't put it there. I should have flown to the pediatric intensive care unit in Seattle. BQ. It sounds like a G-rated Pokemon sneeze. Rowan is there without me. If I had two wishes, it would be to make him healthy and make him my little brother. It would be easier to explain who, in relation to me, is caged in bed with a betraying body. My little guy, wearing sunny yellow oven mitts so he doesn't deliriously rip milky plastic tubes out of his distended chest and nearly bleed out again. Rowan's been there for months, without me. His mother finally shattered when he lost his eyelashes. I don't recognize him. I'm scared to call. I pretend that I can sense when my mother leaves a room to start crying, just so I have some idea of how her eyebrows are moving. She still thinks I'm psychic. I'm strapped into another airplane, retracing the ways I can't stop leaving. We're so proud of you. My pivotal people persist. I dread the day the clouds behind my fleeing plane tell the tiny crowd that I couldn't leave bed last week, or that I set fire to thousands of my mother's imaginary dollars because I still can't eat. I'm carrying a thousand tiny diseases in my tear ducts and throat and nose hairs and eyelids and cunt and every fucking brain lobe. Is that the word? Painted them like the vibrant bungalows dotting toasted sand on all of the beaches where I should have been happy. Held them like they were my newborn children and they don't have knees. They want to be kind to me, but we don't share a language. Rowan is in bed without me. His organs are at war. He's grateful just for easy inhales. He is sick. I should not be. Three, winter. 12 hours before, I tap out stories on my filthy keyboard about how I'm getting good at letting go. 12 hours after, your heart stops in Seattle. I technically have tools to mourn you gracefully. I'm armed with weapons of wisdom to deal with grief, but I'm flicking pebbles at a dragon. What I can say is that I'm honored to have been loved by you. Honored by that time when Squeezed into a motel room on South Padre Island, family all around, you prevented me from napping by bellowing, um, I love you, every time my eyelids grew heavy. You were depth and dinosaur cheerleader games, wise while mispronouncing my name, giving your birthday treasures to charity while screeching about ketchup. You were ten. Four, summer. It had to be July 21st. I'd take cheap ink and a mummified tattoo artist. 
It had to be a dinosaur foot. This is what I have. Lazy garnet pooling at my ankle. Flimsy offering on my speckled skin shrine. Soon I'll forgive you for only coming to me in nightmares. You now cover a few inches of my body with which I'll always be tender. We've already seen the solar eclipse through a tattered box of Cheerios and my roommate cutting her own bangs for old time's sake and a toddler asking if hate is hot or cold. It's a poor man's heaven to be trapped just north of an aching joint, but my whole leg will live a good life for you. As long as I have skin, it's yours. Until I push my arms through the sleeves of the atmosphere and nothing hurts. Happy 11th birthday, Red One. We're here with Michael LaValle. Uh, you'll recognize Michael from his ongoing series on Scout and Birdie, When I Woke Up in Putney, a European sexcapade series. So welcome, Michael. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thanks for being here again with us. <laughs> we missed you. <laughs> it's been um, a minute. Yeah. Um, so we know Michael from college at Columbia uh, College Chicago. Yeah, Michael and I did a bunch of shows together, mm-hmm. and then senior year we all did a show together, um, so that everyone met each other. Yeah, which was perfect. It was really lovely. Yeah, and Michael's and been like a sweet friend of ours ever <laughs> since then, who gives like the best hugs in the world, <sighs> and <laughs> smells lovely all the time. And, yeah, perfect vibes. Great. I love those. Um, what are they called? Like. Identifiers, identifiers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think that suits you? Like those hugs and smells? Just, yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's all very visceral. You're yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, Michael, you you went on your uh, sexcapade trip more than a year ago now, right? Yeah, a little bit over a year. But you're writing all these pieces as each issue comes out. So what's the process of reflecting post, like, a year after these travels and going back and re-examining them and writing them down? So um, it's actually been very difficult, especially coming from, like, even, like, close to a year after I took the trip. It's actually been really hard because I made sure during my trip to write in a journal because I wanted to be able to look back on all these experiences. The whole reason I took my trip was to, you know, figure myself out, see if there wasn't any other outside type of environments that would help me figure out what I want to do with my life and everything. And I knew that writing is something that I really love doing because it's kind of another outlet for you to like express yourself in different ways than, you know, talking to people or just brooding (laughs) generally. (laughs) I remember taking a class where I learned how to, um, I forget exactly what it's called, but I think it's like free form writing where you just basically stop and you don't put your pen down um, and you can't erase anything. And that just lets you have a free form of thought. And that was something that I really made sure to do on my trip. So, I mean, coming back to the journal after like six, seven months even, it's been weird because the whole trip was a very like exhausting mental. I mean, after I was done with the two and a half months, I was like, all right, got it. I'm ready to go back to Chicago. I'm ready to like 
take life by the horns and just like go for it full throttle. And so it's been weird having to recall all these memories and experiences when I've already kind of mentally closed the chapter. So I read my journal and I like relive in a sense mm-hmm. all of these things. Mm-hmm. And it's very strange. And it's also really hard because I want to, when I'm writing these pieces for Scout and Birdie, I want to make them as relatable and as vivid as possible so that people can experience it in my shoes. And it's hard sometimes recall. I mean, a lot, like pretty much two thirds of the trip was me blackout drunk. So <laughs> I mean, like a lot of the pieces I can't even like recall, which is like, I mean, the stories literally say, and I black out, and then it just like <laughs> pops over to the next morning. It's definitely so. been a theme. Yeah, yeah clearly. <laughs> I've, I'm like, yeah. But I, I totally get what you mean about feeling like something is sort of closed, like that chapter of your life is closed, and then like reopening that can be uh, really informative or semi-traumatic. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if like reopening those chapters, like actually reopening your journal, if that has given you a new perspective on this trip, because I know that you keep mentioning that you went on this trip um, to figure yourself out and to, you know, have these experiences and see how it affected your life and has like reopening all of that and looking, looking at it again and formulating it into a story actually helped you reevaluate anything or? In a sense, I think these stories, um, what I wanted to do with all of these stories for Scout and Birdie is kind of a combination of the sexcapade and the relatable factor of like inspiring people to just like you know letting people just be like fuck everything just take a risk and go somewhere you know I think a lot of people are like oh I'd love to like go to your every time I talk about these stories people are like that's so cool like I wish I could do that it's like you fucking can anyone can do it if I can do it anyone can do it a lot of the things that I write in my journal and a lot of the things that I'm writing in Scout and Birdie are heavily focused on the sex part of it because I think that it's something that people are afraid to talk about. So in my journal, I write a lot of very floaty, cloudy type of descriptors of what I'm going through. And mentally is where I keep all of the, you know, I came from point A and now I'm at point D. So I don't necessarily write a lot about it in my journal. I write mostly about like what I did, like a little bit, you know, a sentence or two about what I like, how I feel about it. And then a lot of it is like the sex part because it's just like so crazy. And I remember it was really nice opening my journal, usually in each entry, because I do it by day or I try to. Um, I usually write a kind of reminder of what I learned. I think I learned these things like my first three weeks. It was two philosophies that I like to live by from the trip was patience receives payment. So it was just being patient and taking everything, you know, as it comes and not like creating so much issue around one little tiny thing, like waiting in line for a coffee at Starbucks, like calm down, you're going to get your coffee, it's going to be fine. Otherwise, you're just stressing yourself out over nothing, you know, and waiting your turn always comes back in some way is what I found and just taking time to really appreciate little tiny things and focusing on that part of your life instead of the whole bigger picture because it's stressful. Mm. And the other thing was everything is going to be okay but because it has to be. And that is basically just constantly reminding yourself that, again, not taking everything in such a big matter of fact and just focusing on like the present and not the past or the future because those things tend to create a lot of drama and a lot of pressure on yourself 
and it's like, hey, I missed my flight to Amsterdam from the UK, which I didn't, but you know, if I did, I would be like, okay, it's fine, everything's gonna be okay because it has to be okay. I'll find a flight, patients receive payment. If I just pay whatever I need to pay, it'll probably come back to me in some way, or I hope it does. If it doesn't, it's okay, because everything's gonna be fine. It's not a big deal. I think that's really captures where you were when you were taking the trip, just because it was that post-college kind of feeling of it has to be okay, but you're kind of like wandering and you just have to give in to that yeah. feeling, which is so, so yeah. overwhelming. But I think that's what your whole series captures. It makes me think of where I was at post-college. You mm-hmm. know, you're just like, hey, fuck it. I'm going to do whatever I need mm-hmm. to and, and just try and enjoy this. But then at the same time, it's so overwhelming that mm-hmm. like, I'm trying to see the beauty in everything and find yeah. myself. But then you just end up having crazy nights, mm-hmm. which is more accurate yeah. if you find yourself in these crazy situations right. through these people you meet through strange happenstance. That was all of post-college for yeah. me, kind of. Which also, I mean, a few of the experiences that I had, like that one in Prague... It was, like, a little creepy. It was, like, a little scary. Like, I genuinely thought that that guy was, like, he made me a little uncomfortable. But it's, like, a lot of the things, because I didn't know where I was. I didn't know how to speak different languages, except for, like, a little bit of French, you know. But um, it's, like, these things that you go through. Like, I kind of wanted to be in dangerous situations because it made me be, like, just embrace it. Just figure it out. Because that would, in turn, make me learn so much about myself and you know, learn something that's very, you know, important to call on after the trip. Yeah. Okay, last question would be, uh, what advice would you have for somebody who was sort of stuck in that, like, post-college or just, like, changing in life rut? Because I think it's such a universal feeling that people are just sort of like, what am I, what am I doing? And yeah, you... Seems like this this journey really helped you, and so what advice would you have to somebody else who is experiencing some feelings like that? I would say that going to Europe is definitely not for everyone. It took a lot of money. It took a lot of planning, and I pretty much worked two jobs from February to May, and had no life. Sixty hours a week, whatever. I worked on the weekends because I was a server. So like, it takes a lot of work, but I. I don't regret, and I mean, I'm still paying off of my trip, like, from my credit cards, but I don't regret a single thing, because everyone should leave the country, even if you don't immediately think that that's going to do anything for you, I think you should, because it is, you know, so different than you expect every single time. I mean, I went in with no expectations, and on top of that, I was like, every experience that I'm going to be encountered with, I'm just going to say yes, and I'm going to do it, yes and, yes and, to everything, and that's what got me into such crazy situations that I learned a lot about myself in, but I mean, you just have to think, if you're in that space, everyone goes through it, it's going to pass. I knew that I was like in a weird place with acting from my degree in theater, I knew that I was working shitty jobs that I didn't care about and especially coming from an art degree like you don't really jump into a career at, at the same time so 
I mean, it's different for everyone because, I mean, I think if you had, like, a bachelor's in, like, journalism or something, you would get internships and then blah, blah, blah. But I think even that, like, even if you get a couple internships and then you're, like, presented with, like, an entry-level job, it's like, hey, you know what? Maybe you should just take a year. Maybe you should take a year or, like, a half a year and just travel. And if you come back and you're like, well, I still want to take that job, then cool, you learned and you know, you know. But... I think everyone needs to at least travel, even if it's just in America, just like riding in a car by yourself to a bunch of cities, coast to coast, does wonders because so many people are afraid to just be in their own thoughts. Yeah, I think that's so true. That's really good advice. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being here with us. It's always a joy to get to talk to you again. Of course. (laughs) Well, Everyone, please enjoy When I Woke Up in Putney, a European sexcapade series, Barcelona. I opened my eyes, my body floating in a deep body of water. The water is bright blue and almost crystal clear. My lips taste of salt as trickles of water escape into my mouth. I look up into a cloudless sky and let the sun warm my face. I smile. Barcelona has me. We fly into the city on July 24th, 2016 from Prague. After eating a quick meal of meat, fresh baguette, and crisp apples we buy at the airport, we manage to make our way onto a subway train that takes us into the inner city. We are going to a neighborhood called Via de Garcia, which is on the outskirts of the city. It takes us about an hour and a half, and then I lead Olivia, Elisa, and I to our hostel called Jam Hostel. We get there around lunchtime and walk up to a modern, sleek building with a huge glass door entrance. I press the gray button for the intercom by the door and say we have a reservation. The door unlocks and we walk into a beautiful foyer with concrete flooring, pale wood accents along the walls, and vibrant ivy plants lining the half stairway up to the front desk. As we walk up to the desk, we are greeted by a cute young 20-something with dark features and a thick, friendly Spanish accent. He gives us our key cards for the hostel, shows us into the bathrooms and to our bedrooms, and even gives us a complimentary map that he personally circles and scribbles on with pink highlighter where to go for amazing Spanish food, great sights, and tourist attractions. After settling into our room, Olivia immediately falls asleep on the top bunk. Elisa and I go outside to probably the biggest Spanish patio you've ever seen. It is enclosed by bright yellow walls housing plant life mounted in boxy wooden pots. The flooring is all dulled red Spanish tile and there are several wooden benches scattered between clotheslines to hang your laundry. That is the first thing Elisa and I do, hang up our wet clothes that didn't fully dry in our Prague Airbnb. We write in our journals and talk about our plans in the city. Our first stop of the night was dinner, a tapas place called Sol Soler, which our hot little front desk boy recommends. On our way out of the hostel, I make a desperate attempt to invite him to dinner with us, but he awkwardly laughs it off, saying he has work to do. He was right, though. The food is out of this world. We order so many types of tapas. Hamon iberico, which is dried cured ham. Patatas bravas, which are basically potatoes covered in a curry sauce. Chocos, which is fried cuttlefish. Some type of lasagna thing. It was all scrumptious. 
and a bottle of red wine only costs the equivalent of $10, which is insane, so naturally we split two bottles. Needless to say, we slept very well that night. The next day, we go on a free walking tour about the city of Barcelona and the influence of Catalonian architect Antonin Gaudi. The guide takes us to four iconic Gaudi buildings. He is known for bending the rules of classic architecture, and his work really strikes me, specifically the Sagrada Familia, which is his most famous work. It is a massive cathedral that has taken more than 100 years to build, and it is still not yet complete. Upon waiting in line for the cathedral, which looks similar to a misshapen termite mound, I stare at the building, finding something new every second. After walking through its brownstone doors, my jaw drops. I have an immediate tingling feeling in my hands and feel so small in a world of perfect art and wonder. It smells faintly of frankincense and new wood. There is a cool breeze throughout the many bone-shaped columns. According to the lady next to me, talking quietly to a tour group, Gaudi uses red and orange hues on certain glass windows in the east side of the building and blue and green hues on the west side of the building. This creates different energies in the Sagrada Familia as the sun rises in the east, filling the cathedral with warm tones mimicking the sun and sets in the west mimicking nightfall. As I walk through the other bodies in the orange-colored space, my eyes never look away from the walls and the ceiling. In a way, the inner architecture is that of a carcass with skeletal bones being the pillars holding up the rib-like cage of the ceiling. I don't speak a word as Elisa, Olivia, and I maze our way through the pews and pillars and exit at the other side of the building. We all stop and realize where we just came from. We find a sign that leads us to the basement of the cathedral, which is a dedicated sanctuary for prayer. We go in, separate, and sit in the benches. I close my eyes. Intangible words and colors flash slowly through my mind. Thoughts of my mother, thoughts of my father and family, thoughts of my future all slide past my inner eyelids. I start to hear the echoes of a children's choir, small voices in perfect harmony settling into the black of my thoughts. I feel my eyes start to tear and fall down my cheeks. I quietly let myself release, then breathe out deeply, stand, and walk outside to wait for Elisa and Olivia. After the Sagrada Familia, we walk to a nearby tapas restaurant, order some small salads, light tapas, and a pitcher of sangria. There, feeling quite rejuvenated and relaxed, I check Grinder to start planning out the exciting part of my night. I stumble upon a Spanish couple looking for a third. Bingo. Their names are Gerard and Alberto. After chatting a bit with them, they decide that they want to take all three of us out to the clubs in Barcelona. Olivia has a date herself, so Elisa and I agree. We all head back toward our hostel and stop by a liquor store on the way to grab a bottle of red wine to pregame. At the hostel, we shower and get ready for the night. Olivia heads out shortly after, leaving Elisa and I chugging the wine in our bunk beds. Very cute. Gerard and Alberto live a couple Spanish blocks away. They are both my height and build, average bodies, dark hair, scruffy beards due for a grooming, smell like the musky cologne your grandpa would wear to go golfing. I'm into it. They are in their mid-30s and have been together for seven years. Alberto is an actor and Gerard is a playwright. And guess where they met? Doing a goddamn play together. How fucking precious. We meet them and take an Uber. Yes, they have Ubers in Spain. To the strip of bars and clubs in downtown Barcelona called La Rambla. They take us into a warehouse-like building that charges a 17 euro cover but included a free drink. Apparently all Barcelona clubs are like this. 
We pay and go straight for the bar. We all get some vodka sodas except Elisa. I think she gets a whiskey Coke or something, but I don't remember. We do a quick cheers before they give us a tour. The place was a little empty as it was only about 11 p.m. The clubs don't start bumping until 1 a.m. Gerard and Alberto take us around the massive bottom dance floor and upstairs to four designated rooms lit up with neon lights. Everything reminds me of a dark alleyway in New York City with blinking neon store lights in the distance. They take us to the rooftop, also dimly lit, where several men are sitting on side benches cackling away in Spanish. We go back downstairs and I order us shots of vodka, which we pound back. The crowd starts growing as it gets later, and after a couple rounds of shots and drinks, Elisa dips to go home to the hostel. Gerard, Alberto, and I keep dancing away for another hour or so, bodies blurring and swaying like a sea of people. We start to make out, and I just black out. Over the next couple hours, I remember images of an Uber where we are all laying on top of each other in the back seat, a Spanish apartment hallway with red floor tiles and yellow clay walls, a kitchen with a retro red stove from the 60s, and four white grainy lines displayed across a Spanish Vogue magazine on top of a circular white tiled kitchen table. Four grainy white lines. Alberto hands me a rolled up bill. I look at it, stumble a little to the right, and hear Alberto say, you don't have to, in a warm, pleasant voice that I trust. He stands behind me and grabs my hips. Yes and, Michael, yes and, I remember thinking. I picture a random movie scene where a pale, innocent blonde boy with his shirt off is pressured into doing a line of cocaine. I picture this as I go down to the Vogue España and do one myself. I don't know if this was a real movie scene or not, but I remember feeling the blonde boy's blind, misdirected strength. He just does it, as do I. I act like I know what I'm doing. I put the bill to my right nostril, close the left with my index finger, and just inhale. It hurts, and I taste a bitterness running down the back of my throat. My eyes open wide, and I rub my nose and sniff more to get the rest down. Everything becomes clearer, and I feel wide awake. Oh my god, I've never done that before, I say to Alberto, Gerard watching behind on the couch with his shirt off. How do you feel, Gerard says. Amazing, I reply as I take off my clothes and jump on his naked body sitting on the couch. He puts his hand on my lower back and my body tingles. I think I like cocaine. A few hours later, I wake up naked with the both of them. Gerard sitting on the couch, my head on his bare thigh, and Alberto spooning my body from behind. I settle into his warm body. A Spanish touch is so welcoming. I feel alive and safe at the same time. I sit up and blink a few times. My contacts are dry. I take one out and throw it on the ground for some relief and blink more so the other one comes back into focus. I look at the analog clock on the retro red stove. 6.30 a.m. I should go. Gerard and Alberto wake up as I half-drunkenly put on my clothes. We hug and say our goodbyes. Alberto kisses my lips passionately and smiles into my eyes before closing the door. I walk the few blocks back to my hostel and think about the events of the night. I smile, happy to be in this moment, happy to have lived. As I walk up to the glass door of Jam Hostel, I have a random moment of panic where I check myself to make sure I have all my belongings and notice I'm missing my watch. I must have left it back at the flat. 
I message Alberto and Gerard, and Alberto replies saying, he found the watch and will run over to give it to me. I sit on the sidewalk against the gray cement wall of my hostel and watch the pale light come through the Spanish streets as I wait for him. Moments later, I hear heavy footsteps run towards me. Alberto stops in front of me and hands me my watch, smiling. I say my thanks, and he kisses my lips and holds behind my ear. Have a great day, Michael. Right. Next up, we have Joey Lubefeld. And we know Joey from our time in college uh, Mm -hmm. together. Joey is a person who I'd always see around Columbia, but I didn't get to know him until a little bit later on. Um, And then I found out he was this wonderful, wonderful writer. I heard him read some of his work and we just thought, oh, we've got to have him on Scout and Birdie. So we're really excited to share with you his piece, Clay. The smell of sunscreen invades my nostrils. I am transported back to my mother's laundry room. A sticky, hot summer day, I am forcibly lathered in sunscreen. Get on a rusting school bus. Take me to a dreaded day of summer camp. When the smell of sunscreen hits my nose, my stomach immediately tightens itself, twists about in a hokey-pokey of anxiety and fear. Camp is a most dangerous time. The bus takes us down a path I still don't recognize. I see it every day. My face is hot from my pouring tears that are only now starting to dry. My stuffed nose will barely let me breathe. We enter the fenced-in campgrounds. I get off the bus. Under my feet, the chalky gravel crunches. I stomp my feet to cloud myself in its dust. Maybe I will disappear before they can find me. I never do. My feet drag themselves across dark grass, peppered with the faded brown of a dried-out weed, past the swimming pool, past the arts and crafts building, beyond the dark path of the woods, after we reach the edge of the delicious dark wood for the girl's tent, a color so rich I can taste it as I remember it. Once we've trekked through the open field, leaving the baseball diamond behind, I'm in a tent filled with picnic benches, the aggressive buzz of chatter amongst the campers, far from where the bus dropped off so far from home. I am in the boys' tent, the sports camp tent. The girls are in the cabin. I want to be in the girls' cabin. They don't have to roll around in dirt, point an arrow at a target that always seems to move at the last second. The deep, dark wood protects their skin from the sun. It's acceptable for them to spend so much time in the arts and crafts building, firing terracotta clay balls molded into vases that store dreams on their grandma's kitchen table. They aren't expected to have a dexterity to throw a ball across the field. They don't need to risk life and limb to catch a ball hurtling towards the green. These are not stars that have fallen from the sky. I am a foreigner, tortured against my will to play games I will never win, use skills I will never acquire, achieve a claim I will never want my tiny heart to hold. Behind a beige brick wall, 
I curl myself, cowering in a corner. We strip ourselves bare and get ready to swim. My eyes travel around, trying to sneak glimpses of the other boys' bodies. My curiosity gets the better of me. I am distracted and confused, and the cocoons in my stomach are turning into butterflies, but I don't know why. I am acutely aware that my stomach is rounder than the rest. This daily task continues to threaten me with an exposure I cannot define. Years later, I still cannot forget the way the protective sunscreen became toxic. Memories flood back in the way colors blend in a kaleidoscope, going from one shape to the next until they are undefinable. Somehow I know. I'm crying in the shower. I am not what they expected me to be. I am not who they planned I would become. To them, I am not right. To me, I am wrong. I make myself small, slowly start to disappear, trace the bones, watch the color fade from my cheeks. Late in the night, I sneak down to the family room. I know which steps will creak and know how to step over them. I fear my mom can hear the quiet creaks of the steps. I'm holding my breath. Somehow I know she knows what I'm doing. She can find it in the candy wrappers, granola bar casings, empty bags of chips I've hidden in couch cushions, under garbage in the trash can. I mask my garbage with their garbage. The only light comes from the refrigerator and dim glow of the television. I move faster than my mind can comprehend. I'm watching myself from on high. I forget to breathe. I feel sick. I am empty still. I haven't been swimming in years. The last time I was, I don't know how the weight of it all didn't pull me to the bottom. I fear the exposure of the water, but respect the strength of the tide. I see the beauty in the ocean and the freedom in her depths. Pick up a seashell, hear her calling me faintly to a time I wish were different. Singe the photographs, forget the memories, bathe in aloe gel to soothe the burns, stand right where the sand kisses the waves, burn me all to the ground, place the ashes in a terracotta urn I molded at summer camp, I will try to rise anew. In the darkest hour, you just might see the flame of a phoenix. All right, so next up we have Jeff Schaefer. And I know Jeff through um, my friend Monica Guzman, who was on Scout and Birdie's last issue. Mm-hmm. Um, and I met Jeff at Monica's event, The Nightside, where he played just the most beautiful music. And then when I talked to him, I realized he's also an amazing writer. So he's a man of many talents. Mm-hmm. And we're really excited to share with you Jeff's piece, Windows. There is a time and a town that you could mistake as your own. In that time and in that town bore two windows, side by side. In the leftmost window was a boy named Leon. He was frail, shy, and by choice, home-ridden. He would glance out in wonder on occasion, but never thought to leave. On the right lived another boy, Gwyn, just a few years older. 
Neither boy was brave enough to delve past their own world. They were aware of each other, of course, but they never interacted, despite their proximity. And what laid betwixt? Walls? The mortar? And well? Nothingness. It was late into the night when Leon was tending to a few chores before retiring, when he heard a pitter-patter just beyond his window. Apprehensively, he withdrew the curtains. A silhouette of a figure came into view. It stopped, pivoted its head, and turned towards the boy and gazed in. Leon, paralyzed, knew not what to do. The outsider turned away from Leon and strode on. It approached the second window, stopped, turned its head, and peered in. It raised its hand and gave two knocks. Leon listened and heard Gwyn cautiously close the distance towards the outsider. Dialogue was initiated as but soft whispers. Leon held his breath in an effort to hear the words. The outsider spoke. I give to you the world. Here, take it. The outsider extended its hand, and Gwyn did the same. One last whisper, and the outsider diverted its attention and moved on. Leon, full of intrigue, waited to hear a sign of Gwyn's gift. Leon's senses were instantly overwhelmed. Lights poured out from Gwyn's window with a vibrant array of splendor, a cacophony of music soared, and the floors rumbled with excited flurries of motion. Was Gwyn actually gifted the outside world in the safety of his abode? Leon's excitement elevated with the idea of receiving this gift as well. The day ceased as night emerged, and sure enough, a familiar noise was heard. Leon gleefully rushed towards the window and saw the outsider. However, it did not stop. It passed by. Knock, knock. Met with only whispers again, Leon held his breath to focus. The outsider pointed into Gwyn's window. He heard Gwyn retreat into his room and pick up an object. Gwyn and the outsider made an exchange. The silhouette took its gift and started its departure. Leon caught a glimpse of what looked like a photo in a picture frame nestled in its hand. A few moments passed, and sure enough, Gwyn's room erupted with prodigious colors, enticing melodies, and vibrations all around. These exchanges continued night after night. The outsider would arrive, point to an object, and they would trade. At first, Gwyn would ponder if his possessions were worth giving up, but ultimately, he never said no. After some time, the highs fleeted and gave way to the lows. The light seemed duller, the music seemed weaker, the floors remained in balance. The outsider arrived on time, as it always did, and knew the remedy. Two for two. A gesture Gwyn understood. After doubling down, this night had an exceptional explosion of senses. The lights were vivacious like they were on the first night. The music echoed with playful complexities, and of course, movement returned, causing the floor to stir. More nights passed, and more of Gwyn's things were traded away. Night fell upon the town, the pitter-patters occurred, and like clockwork, there was two knocks. Nothing out of the ordinary. Leon waited to hear Gwyn and the outsiders exchange. However, this night he heard Gwyn speak. I have nothing left. The outsider's demeanor changed as if to challenge that statement. A few seconds went by. Not a single noise from that point on. Fear overtook Leon. He paced. He finally gathered up his courage, opened up his window, stepped outside, and ran to Gwyn's, and entered. 
He had imagined the walls to be splashed with color, vast music collections, beautiful works of art, plants, life, stories, wonders of all sizes, and all the other things that would be entwined with being gifted entire worlds. Instead, he stepped into a room that was blank, empty, no pictures, no identity, just barren. Gwyn had truly given everything away. Leon fell to his knees. He called out for Gwyn, but he did not respond. He was gone. Gone from that time. Gone from that town. Gone. Leon looked out at the world from Gwyn's window. He dried his eyes and stepped outside. Well, that's it for the witching hour. Thank you so much for being here with us. If you want to keep up with us, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also subscribe to us on the podcatcher of your choosing. Um, make sure to go on to scoutandbirdie.com if you'd like to read any of the pieces that you heard on the podcast today. You can also check out past issues on there and flip through. And if you'd like to submit to Scout and Birdie, you can click on the submission tab on our website and get all the information on how to submit there. So thank you so much for listening to Issue 8, The Witching Hour. I'm Jennifer Keel. And I'm Anna Wolf. And we'll see you next time with our November issue. Breathe. Bye. Bye. <laughs>